Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Think about a skill you want to improve. No, really, think of one. What is it? Now, how do you plan to get better at it? What would it take to become world-class at that skill? Cal Newport has dissected deliberate practice, the methods to improve any skill to the point that you become so good people can't ignore you. We discuss why deliberate practice is so important for job satisfaction, even more so than passion, and what a practice for character development could look like. Now, this episode is for people who want to get really, really, really good at doing something. It's also for those still searching to find the career, job, or activity right for them. And it's also for people like me who have too many passions and don't know where to start. Cal is a professor of computer science at Georgetown University, wrote the best-selling book So Good They Can't Ignore You and How to Win at College, and runs the popular blog Study Hacks. Let's go and see how deliberate practice can upgrade our human operating system. Cal, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been following your work for a bunch of years now. And what really excites me is that you are in touch with a crowd similar to me and similar to a lot of our students who are kind of at the start of their career and really thinking about how can I make myself and and the world an amazing place by improving my skills. So, you know, I'm a big fan of the book and I know other people will be too. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, well, no, it's my, my pleasure. I'm certainly interested in what you guys are up to as well over there with your school. So the first question I'd like to ask is what sparked your interest to write So Good They Can't Ignore You and how, what's kind of the genesis of your journey in writing it? Well, what sparked the interest in the book was actually my own beginning career. So I, I sold that book around the time that I was finishing graduate school and was going to temporarily be a postdoc, but after that needed to, to figure out what I was going to do. Was I going to be a professor? Was I going to do something else? And I figured if there was any time in my life I needed an answer to the question, how do people end up loving what they do for a living, this was the time where that answer would be as valuable as possible. So that event actually sparked me to write the book. Now, now the event that actually got me thinking about the, the conclusions I ended up finding, the event that got me thinking about the role passion plays in this question actually was earlier because before I got to this point, I had been writing quite a bit about student issues. My first books were, were study advice style books for, for students of various ages. And because of that, I ended up working with quite a few students, usually at the undergraduate and high school level, on basic student advice type issues. But one thing I kept noticing during that student work is that college students in particular had this issue where they would choose a major and they would go with it for a while and then they would get about halfway through their junior year and suddenly change their major. And I was seeing this again and again. I was like, what's going on here? Why are people changing their majors late in the game? And what I realized was is that they had this plot line that there was some one true passion out there and if they matched their major to the, ma- the passion, then they would just love working on this topic. They'd be excited about it. School would be energizing for them. 
And when they got to their midway through their junior year, early senior year, the courses would get hard. It's not fun to do hard things. And they would have this crisis and think this must not be my passion. I have to switch. So it was actually advising students that I was first exposed to the potential danger of this idea that we are hardwired with a particular passion that we have to identify. Where does that idea come from? You know, I think people are always talking about how passionate and trying to find passions. Where, where does that come from, you think? It's more recent than many people actually believe. If you, if you go back through different cultures and different times, uh, there wasn't as much this emphasis on you are wired to do something, you have to discover it or you're not going to be happy. You know, if we look at the ancient Greeks, for example, they're much more likely to talk about uh, eudaimonia, a state of flourishing that depended on you actually doing things really well and doing things at the full you know, extent of your potential. Uh, but our generation was raised with this idea that you should follow your passion. We were the first generation to be raised with that phrase. It didn't really emerge in the career conversation uh, in our culture until the late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, so it's a pretty recent phenomenon. As best I can tell, it, it came out of a pretty uh, uh, sort of complicated time in American work culture, this sort of transition we were having from a primarily industrial agricultural economy into an economy that was increasingly knowledge-based and service-based. So there was this period in the 70s and 80s where we were trying to figure out from scratch, okay, how do we go about our careers? If, if it's not, you know, I'm going to take a factory job at the factory that's in our town and I'm going to stay in my town. And instead it was, I could do any number of knowledge work jobs. I'm willing to travel anywhere in the country. We had a lot more decisions to make. So follow your passion was just one of several strategies that people threw out there as a way to try to make sense of all the confusion surrounding our new job economy. And it stuck around because it was appealing to people. So the confusion is definitely still there. <laughs> I know you were mentioning that a lot of students feel it at the beginning of school. And I'm also even seeing it now, having graduated two years a lot of confusion on how people should go about their routes because you're going through elementary school, you know, working to middle school, middle school to, to high school, high school to college, and then afterwards there's this big blank slate and that can be overwhelming for people because they have the passions, there's some things they're good at, there's some opportunities and it's almost like this optimization of all these different things and I find a lot of people my age feeling overwhelmed. So, you know, when someone comes up to you and says, what should I do with my career? How do you strategically think about that? Well, the first thing I recommend is ban the word passion when you're thinking ban about it. your career. Ban it. Don't use it. If you ban the term, suddenly you can start making a lot more reasonable decisions about what you want to do or not do. Because this term, it's been corrosive. It's been corrosive in the way that, that we currently think about jobs because uh, it, it, it's this idea that, that you're hardwired for something. And, and that you, you should feel this really strong, unambiguous you know, energy and attraction to this passion. You, this is the feeling that you're looking for. Almost outside and of your control. It's outside just... <laughs> of your control. Yeah, it's very much like in the, in the sort of Christian notion of a calling, which was, you know, used to be literally the notion of this was actually you know, God calling you towards you know, doing something in particular. So it's, it's, there's a very sort of Christian element to it. Um, but this notion that you, you don't control it, it, you identify it, and, and it's just going to energize you through the whole process of, of you know, doing this career. You will always feel good about it. It's going to push you to great heights. So this force from outside that pre-exists is what's going to propel you through the career. And it really just doesn't match the reality. I mean, we know a lot about career satisfaction. We know a lot about how people build very successful, meaningful careers. And it's much more complicated. 
And it's much more interesting than this notion that from birth, you're imbued with a particular job you're supposed to do. And once you find it, you're all set. That's just too simplistic. And if you buy into that being real, you're going to be led astray and you're going to miss the more complicated paths that really lead people to actual satisfaction. So how should we look at our careers if we're not using our passion and kind of our, our gut reactions of, oh, I'm, I'm interested in this issue. I'm interested in this issue. I, I like this. How should we think about it? Well, I, I recommend that you put a, a lot less emphasis on pre-existing traits when thinking about your career. Uh, so it's fine if, if there's something you're interested in, that's a useful input, but it's not the sole deciding factor or all that matters for building a meaningful career. Uh, I think people should instead flip the equation and think about you know, a sense of real passion or meaning or satisfaction as being the goal. Uh, this is the goal that you're going to get to after many years if you approach your career in the right way, if you craft it in the right way. It's not what drives you through it, it's what you're trying to drive towards. Uh, so that's, that's usually how I talk about it. So there's a lot of different ideas about how you actually do it because it is complicated. Um, but, but essentially, the, I can boil down a lot of what you find about career satisfaction to, the, to a pretty simple formula. You know, as you become better at something important, your passion for that field, the sense of meaning and satisfaction you will get, will increase along with that. Hmm. And so I know that you, you talk a lot about the a term you use is career capital and kind of thinking about your skill development. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the more you know, intricate equation here is uh, why is it that if you get good at things, you're more likely to feel passion for your job? Well, it turns out there's, there's basically an uh, economic equation here. So the, the traits that make people really enjoy a job, the traits that make a job something that that is very satisfying and a source of passion are rare and valuable. So if you want those in your job, you have to have something rare and valuable to offer in return. And almost always in the job marketplace, that's going to be skills, rare and valuable skills. Hmm. Um, so I use the, the analogy or metaphor of career capital to just help conceptualize this process that as you get better at skills that are rare and valuable, you can imagine that you're acquiring this substance that we call career capital. And that what you then do is invest this career capital to get the type of traits that are going to make you like your job more. So if you want something that's going to make your job drastically better, according to this metaphor, you're going to have to have a lot of career capital to invest because that's very valuable. And how do you get a lot of career capital? Well, you're going to actually have to just get really good at things. So the better you are at things, uh, the more leverage you have in some sense over your career uh, and what you do, what you don't do, how much satisfaction you get or don't get out of it. So career capital just helps me um, conceptualize these underlying economic dynamics. Mm. So could you maybe share a story maybe your, of your own life or some of your students of how you've seen computer, uh, you've seen career capital uh, gained and leveraged in the computer science world? Yeah, you see it a lot in computer science because the career capital actually has uh, quite a bit of value. <laughs> so, so this is, is certainly a field that as you get better at, for example, computer science-related issues, uh, your leverage over your career, you know, what you do, what you don't do, where you live, how you work, what you work on, really goes up. Right? So if, if you're excellent at, at computer science, for example, um, you can optimize for many different things that might be important to you. So let's say autonomy is very important to you. Well, I tell a story in the book, for example, of this fantastic uh, database developer 
who, who basically, she leveraged this great skill she built up over many years so that she could have a job in which she would work for about six months and then spend six months in Asia and then work for six months and spend six months in Asia. That was her leveraging her career capital. If on the other hand, let's say money is very important to you, well, certainly there's a lot of routes in which you could leverage a, a fantastic skill in career capital for you know very high salary jobs, be it in uh, Wall Street or in Silicon Valley. So just depending on what's important to you, um, you know, computer science is this classic field. Or for me, for example, I really like the the intellectual challenge of original research. I'm a theoretical computer scientist. It takes a ton of career capital in order to get someone to give you a job or you can just work on research as a professor full-time. That's it's sort of a, a hard job to get. I see it, though, as a career capital exchange. You know, I did a lot of work to build up this capital that I could then invest to get these traits, uh, and now I have a job that I really like. So it's a more complicated story than just, I knew this was my one true passion and then I never had to look back. It's a little bit more subtle. You know, I, I saw this job has some traits I would like. I built up career capital. As I got better, I liked my job more. Interesting. So it's it's focusing on the job and the roles and sort of the reality of doing that type of work and then maybe thinking backwards about what skills can I gain to get there. Yeah, and keeping in mind that, that often the traits that people really like, the traits that make great work great, uh, persist over many different jobs. Mm. So it, there's really not this notion that there's there's a best job for you. In general, there's just a best strategy, which is get really good and use those skills as leverage. So I, it's important to think about this. There's no one job for you. There's dozens of jobs that you could really love. What matters is what you do once you step down that path. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of what you say in terms of focusing on the job and, and, you know, there's many different routes to go. I think for people who are still kind of stuck in the passion mindset or even just reflecting upon their own skills, they might say, I'm interested in education. I've taught for a bunch of years and I really like teaching and I also really like writing. I've blogged. I've had some success there and I also built an app. And so for people who are talented in multiple places and almost kind of chronically unfocused because of it, <laughs> I, th I think this definitely applies to me in that there's so many different things that I'm interested in that I, I kind of get uh, deliberate practice paralysis and I can't really focus all my attention on one thing. You know, it can be kind of scary to give up some things to really focus on your craft in one thing. You know, how, how do you suggest people go about selecting for themselves what they really want to get good at? And how do they stay focused? I guess those are two questions. Yeah, those, those are two good questions. The selection, uh, there's no, the good news, bad news is there's, there's no algorithm for doing that that's somehow optimal to use the computer science terms there's no sort of optimality there now that's bad news because you know you don't have okay here's my measures and i'll just measure all my different interests and one of them will come out on top and that's what i'll do we don't have that algorithm but the good news is that's because probably most of your interests could be the foundation of a very satisfying working life what, once do, you, what do you mean by foundation so uh, choose one of your many interests and say, this is what I'm going to focus on building career capital in this. No matter which of those interests you choose, you probably have a very similar probability of ending up uh, very satisfied and passionate about your work. Hmm. So this is why I think there's no easy way to say, what should I work on? It's because there's really no definitive answer to that question. Um, to, to push back a little, you know, choosing any of those, I'll be satisfied. You know, the nature of doing writing work and potentially being a journalist 
is super different than teaching in a classroom in front of students. And, you know, the experience of doing both is, is so different. How is it that they'd be likely equally satisfying if I get good at both? Well, I, I, I think the, the fallacy behind uh, what you're saying there, which I think is very common, is that in our modern career thinking, we put too much emphasis on the specifics of the behavior that's in a job. So we, we think a lot about, well, what would it be like to teach in front of a classroom and how would that make me feel versus maybe being in a boardroom and working on a meeting. We think about the very specific behaviors assigned with a job and think about matching those behaviors somehow to you and some intrinsic traits. Like I'm just better suited to do this type of action mm-hmm. than this type of action. And what we what I'm countering with is like that's not actually so important. What's more important are these more general traits, like having a sense of autonomy, having a sense of mastery, having a sense of connection to people, having a sense that you're having an impact on the world, the ability to be creative, to create something new from scratch. These type of more general traits are what lead people to, to feel really passionate about their work and to have a real sense of meaning. These traits require a lot of career capital as well to get into your career. Uh, so that's if you think about it that way, then it's like, well, if I was really good at, you know, being a professor, for example, I could get those traits in my life. If I was very good at being a writer, I could get those same traits in my life. If I was very good at being an entrepreneur, I could get a lot of those same traits in my life. So in all three cases, you could end up feeling a lot of passion. The specifics of the job, the specifics of what exactly what I'd be doing day to day aren't as important as we like to prioritize right now. Hmm. And so really what gets us to that satisfying point is through getting really, really good at something. (laughs) And, you know, before we dive into the the details of how to really get good, I think that there's an important conversation, at least for me, that needs to happen, which is focus. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if I'm going to try to get really, or I I can say even from my personal experience, I've been really wanting to improve my writing craft these past couple weeks. And no matter how much I try, if I block down three hours in the morning, wake up early, there's always like social media notifications that slam and hit me in the face. There's emails that come that take way too much longer than expected. There's friends who are saying, you know, oh, there's this exciting thing, or maybe even there's a writer coming to speak and, you know, you can listen and learn from him. There's almost this like, like paralyzing abundance that a lot of people face because there's so much stuff on the internet, because there's so much things that can distract us that might seem seemingly productive. So, you know, before we even dig into how do I practice, how do I (laughs) create an environment where I'm not distracted and I actually can practice? Have you thought about that? And I'd love to hear any sort of practices or things that you've codified that really helps you create that environment to really dive deep. Well, not everyone likes the answers. So, <laughs> so, so, so for listeners, uh, you know, if you might want to tune out if, if you're not ready to hear the hard stuff, um, you might not, you might not want to hear it. So, okay, for we'll we'll use myself as a case study. Okay. Um, so you know, I've built my professional life around focusing on a very small number of things and doing those very well, and it's created an immense amount of satisfaction and passion for me. And as I get better, that only grows. But but my whole life is just focused professionally on writing, and computer science. Uh, and that's it. Um, and I have to spend a lot of time to keep getting better at those. They're very hard fields after a while, especially as you get to higher levels. So here's a couple of things you would notice about me. I've never had a Facebook account. I've never had a Twitter account. 
Uh, I don't web surf. If you, if you put a computer in front of me and say, entertain yourself, I don't know where to go on the internet, like what websites you go to. I'm a blogger who doesn't read other people's blogs, <laughs> right? So um, I get my news from newspapers and the radio, and, and that's about it. Uh, I'm just not that connected. Uh, really, I spend the time I spend working, I really spend working on trying to write my craft, and I spend time on computer science more deep thinking, trying to prove more things, trying to do more research, and otherwise I'm relaxing. So my life is somewhat monastic in that way, but that's what allows me to keep getting better. That's what allows me to push my skill levels towards more and more uh, elite places, and that's what generates more career capital and keeps giving me more control over what I do. So the, the sort of general answer to your question is the key is to develop an appreciation for craftsmanship for craftsmanship's sake. To realize that you can get as as much satisfaction out of actually honing your craft, that process, as you do out of the specific outcomes. Uh, that's hard to get jump-started, but once that gets going, it becomes easier and easier to start pruning away other things and putting more of your attention towards this one area in which you're trying to develop your skills. So I think it helps once you, you put this in the context of there not really being a single right choice. I think that helps people get started because some of this, this paralysis is as long as you believe that there's wrong choices and a very small number of right choices, it's very hard to take that leap into taking one thing and giving it most of your attention because what if that's the wrong choice? That's kind of paralyzing. But once you recognize that, well, actually, there's no real right or wrong choice. Like There's a lot of things. So well, you might as well just choose something and get going. I think that helps people get that sort of bootstrap process underway. Because you chose computer science and writing. Um, but you could have chose so many other different skills because as long as you appreciated the craftsmanship and had a process around it and was getting better at it and had career capital, you'd have all the satisfying aspects of a job no matter what. That's right. So I, I wrote this, this article about it a, a few years ago about my own time after college. And the basic premise was is that I, I had three different directions that I could go. I could go to graduate school. Um, I could be a full-time writer. I, you know, I had sold two books at that point, and there were some opportunities for me to do that full-time. Um, or and I had a job offer in industry, so I had a job offer at Microsoft. So I could go to Microsoft, I could write full-time, or I could go to grad school acceptances. And sort of the gist of this article was um, that decision didn't phase me because I was convinced that any three of those directions could be a source of a very meaningful, satisfying career. The notion that I'm somehow I'm wired for one of those things and not the other two wasn't that relevant to me. So the choice was somewhat incidental. Yeah. And so I'm sure you have readers who write who, like me, might be a little stubborn <laughs> and think like, oh, my gosh, I have to, to dedicate 20 years to my craft to get better. Like, I have to make that one decision that's going to last for 20 years and I have to keep with it for 20 years. You know, the people who are really stubborn, who you feel like you can't, who, who really are just not getting the core of what you're saying, what do you say to them or what, what, are, what are the effective sort of framings that really help them understand your point about it, you know, it doesn't matter what you pick, it's more how you do it? Well, I mean, the, what it comes down to is you really do have to have career capital if you want a, a career that's really meaningful, there's very few exceptions to, to having a meaningful, satisfying career without a lot of career capital. And it's really hard. It takes time. So, I mean, whether, whether you, you accept it or not, or whether you like the fact that it takes a long time, it, it seems to be just the reality of the world of work. It's, it's hard to get good at things that people value. 
And it's also really, really necessary. And it's, there's really no shortcut around it. Yeah. There's really no way to get around it. And the good news is it's satisfying to work on your craft. The good news is your passion for a craft will grow along with your skill. You don't have to wait till you're excellent at it before you start enjoying it. So it's, it's not an unpleasant thing to do. It's actually a very satisfying thing to do. Um, but I don't think there's any way around the fact that doing things really well takes a lot of time. And that seems to be the foundation for doing cool things with your life. So speaking of things taking a lot of time and there being no shortcuts, I'd love to sort of turn the conversation onto what this sort of deliberate practice looks like. And I know you, you talk about doing exercises. And so could you, could you give us a little overview of the nuance of how to really get better at these skills and what we know about doing that? Yeah, deliberate practice is a, a popular idea from the field of performance psychology. Um, and the, the idea is actually quite simple, right? If you study how do people become really good at things, the basic point of deliberate practice uh, theory is that people who are excellent at things are rarely just born excellent at those things. Um, there's almost always a long period of practice involved. Okay, so we can kind of see that's intuitively true. But the other main finding from deliberate practice theory is it's not just any activity that's going to make you better. So, for example, just doing something a lot doesn't necessarily make you better at it. To actually improve at something, you have to deliberately practice, which means you have to set out and do activities that are designed to stretch you, to stretch your ability and make you better. So there's various controversies surrounding deliberate practice, but not much controversy around these core ideas, which is to become an expert at things takes practice, and that practice actually has to be aimed at improving you. You can't just do anything related to the field and expect to get better at it. Um, so that, th those ideas seem to show up in, in almost any field, and I think they show up in careers, uh, career and career development all the same, that you need to be deliberately trying to improve the relevant skills in your career. Uh, it's the only way you're going to improve, and it takes a while to get really good. So I've seen in some of your past interviews and also in the book, you, you, you break down what a good deliberate practice looks like, and it, it relates to if you want to get good at teaching, if you want to get good at coding, if you want to get good at lots of different aspects. And I, I know you make a distinction between an auction market for skills and a winner take all. We'll, we'll get to that later. Um, but some of the things I've, I've noticed you've mentioned, and I'd love to dive deeper into this is, you know, when it comes to practice, some of the, the micro skills of a deliberate practice are identifying what you're weak at and identifying, um, you know, people who are masters at the skills you can learn from. And then designing good exercises, getting brutal feedback. Um, you know, are, are there any other components before we, I kind of ask some questions about each of those? No, I think it's the right summary. You need to be very specific about what you're trying to improve. Uh, you need to have had some sort of expert guidance in selecting what you're trying to improve and how you're going to improve it. And then you need brutal feedback about in what is, is am I improving it or not so that you can keep stretching yourself. Roughly, that's the formula for an effective practice routine. Awesome. So let's take um, teaching, for example. How do you identify what you're weak at? What, what's kind of the process by doing that? Because, you know, as a novice, it, it, it can be hard to, to understand what's going well and what's not because you're kind of new into a field. Right. So usually there's two things you can do. One is you can get expert feedback. So you can just have someone who's really good at teaching watch you. Right. People don't like this because you, know, you have to get a lot of criticism. <laughs> but uh, you know, at universities, this is built into the system. You mm -hmm. have these sort of 
these peer evaluations where, where senior professors sit in on your class and actually tell you, okay, here's what you're not doing well. Um, and you can simulate this yourself to some degree by uh, watching experts and then reflecting. You know, what is it they're doing that I'm not doing? What is it that they're doing that, that is making me really enjoy this or is making this really engaging? And do I do that too? So mm -hmm. you really have two ways of, of identifying what to improve. Have an expert watch you and tell you or watch the experts and try to figure out what makes them so good and what should those things am I not doing? And how do you watch them? You know, because I could, you know, I've, I've watched movies and I've watched lectures and you're just thinking like, oh, what are they saying? You know, what are you really paying specific attention to? Well, you just try, you know, you get better at this with practice, ironically. Um, but you're, you're really trying to figure out, just decompose, deconstruct. Mm. You know, I used to do this with, with writing um, when I was transitioning from pure advice books to more idea-style books, is that I would take articles, long-form articles, uh, in the genre that I was interested in, and I would break them down. I'd say, let me break it down into the beats. Uh, okay, the section A is about this, and then they have a transition here. And then I would break down a bunch of articles, and then I'd say, is there a pattern here? Like, is this writer doing the same type of pattern every time? You know, what is it that's making this flow? Oh, I can see it's narrative momentum here. Look how it's shifting. So sometimes it's just trying to break down what you're seeing and then study those pieces and try to figure out what's important and what's not and how they fit together. It's like a puzzle. Um, and you get better at it the more you do. And how do you identify the authorities or the people? You know, I'm, I'm just thinking there's, there's different routes that come to my mind in terms of writing. There's the people who have published books that that's one metric, but there's also people who have blogs who, you know, are, it may not be the highest quality content, but there's virality to it. And it's kind of easy clickbait. And, you know, <laughs> so they might get a lot of views, but it may not necessarily be the best writing. And then another route could be reading what some writing professors at universities are, are writing about writing or what Hemingway is writing about writing. You know, there's so many different choices. How do you go about navigating Who's, who are the experts who you should pay attention to? I usually suggest to work backwards from an appealing vision of your future and then find people who match that vision. So in writing, for example, you would try to envision, well, well what, is, what is a vision of where I would like to be with writing? If that vision involves you winning a National Book Award, then that's going to push you towards, I want to understand you know, what award-winning nonfiction writers do. If that vision is, I want to be making a living off of my blog, then that's going to push you towards trying to understand, you know, bloggers who have significant revenue coming in or significant traffic. Uh, so you work backwards from this person in the field I care about represents a lifestyle that I would like to have that hmm. resonates with me. Uh, and, and then that's someone to, to, to work with because ultimately that's your goal, right? I mean, why, why do all this work is, well, you're trying to get to a particular state of life, a particular professional lifestyle that is appealing to you. So working backwards from the lifestyle tends to be effective. And it's funny because I was almost more inclined to say, you know, let's pay attention to their work. <laughs> but I think that almost goes along with the passion mentality of like thinking that the, the work is going to be the end in, up, end in it of itself where really it's the lifestyle you build around it that can come from many different ways that that's, you know, most fulfilling. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying before, is that we should de-emphasize the, the, the particular behaviors and actions associated with a career and emphasize more the more general traits that a career can generate, like autonomy and mastery and impact and connection to people and creativity. 
so yeah, the specific work, the actual act of writing, uh, okay, I mean, that's interesting, but more interesting is the lifestyle that it gives you. Is it highly intellectual? Is it highly autonomous? Does it have an impact on the world of ideas? Those are the type of traits that you're, you're trying to assess and see what resonates and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And so, okay, so we've identified a lot of weaknesses that we personally have and skills that we see authors do, and we, we have a good vision of where we want to go with things. What sort of exercises and how, how do, do you think about designing exercises to really tackle these weaknesses that we have in, in our practice and get better at? What are the different sort of components of these exercises that make them effective? They need to be specific and they need to have real feedback. And the, you need both those things. Like for, for writing, for example, you know, a, a big trap that people fall into is they say, I'm just going to write a lot to get better. But if that writing is for your own blog, for example, you're actually not going to get that much better because you're not getting brutal feedback on this isn't good, this is worse than the last thing. You can. This is what we know from deliberate practice theory is just repeating an activity over and over does not make you better at it. You need that sort of brutal feedback. So for writing, for example, when I was really trying to up my game after my first couple of books, I found uh, an online magazine um, that would look at – it was edited for edited – uh, for editing, the editor was pretty brutal, right? I mean, it was a, it was a <laughs> semi, not hipstery, but, but you know, uh, influenced certainly by the sort of Dave Eggers, McSweeney's mm-hmm. type crowd. So it was, a, there was pretty a, a high bar for quality and they would, you could pitch a story if they liked the idea, they would, you could write it for them. And if it wasn't good, they would reject it. And if it was good, but not quite there, they would edit it pretty heavily to make it better. And so I said, great, I found this venue I'm just going to keep pitching things again and again and again because I was writing for editing. And then the type of things I pitched, the topics I would pitch them were selected to focus on particular skills in my writing that I thought I needed to improve. So I Mm -hmm. essentially created for myself an environment where I could practice specific skills and have, you know, objective and somewhat brutal feedback that would really push me to work really hard and to really try to make things better. And so it really helped me stretch pretty quickly. So you have to be specific and you have to have real feedback. And the real feedback, what's real and what's not real feedback? Well, it's an expert giving you a clear Mm -hmm. uh, assessment of quality, right? So the fact that I knew that this guy would reject the article if it actually wasn't of professional quality, that forced me to work much harder on it than I would have if I was just posting it on my own blog, for example. Um, And that that effort to work really hard so that he wouldn't reject it was like lifting heavier weights as a weightlifter that it stretched my abilities more. Did he give you any feedback as to why your pieces were not being accepted? Yeah, I mean, he would be, you know, this, uh, I don't buy it, this isn't clear. I mean, this sort of, writing mm-hmm. for editing is, is really a powerful way to become a better writer for exactly that reason. It's the feedback you get, but it's also the fear of the rejection, which pushes you to work harder than you might otherwise do. Mm. So that kind of brings us to the third piece of deliberate practice, which is feedback. And, you know... What are some of the effective outlets you've seen people use? It's, it's, it sounds like what you're saying for the feedback, what makes it really effective is you're engaging from the real world with the real world and getting expert feedback. Yeah. What are some of the sources of experts or, you know, I mean, publications is one for writing in different industries. What are examples of methods that people can use to get real feedback from experts? Because 
you know, just just off of my head, I'm thinking it seems pretty difficult to find an expert who's w willing to pay attention to me. <laughs> you know, so yeah. what, what are some of the nuances? And I, it would be awesome to hear a couple of like four or five, six industries, or how, however many examples you have of different ways in which people go about getting expert feedback on what they're working on. Well, a very useful heuristic is to keep in mind that money is, uh, and, I'm, and I'm quoting the entrepreneur Derek Sivers here, money is a fantastic neutral indicator of value. That in a lot of cases, it people are happy to blow smoke and say, oh yeah, what a great idea. I love your business idea. Oh, your writing's great. You should definitely write that book. But people do not like to give up their money. <laughs> they do not like to give up their money unless they really find mm -hmm. value. So in most fields, there are opportunities where you essentially are trying to sell something. And if people are giving you money for it, then that's an indication that you did something well, you've created more value. And if they don't, then there's not that much value there. You did not execute it that well. So, so let me give you some, some specific you know, examples of this. If you're trying to become a novelist, don't go self-publish a bunch of books. You're not getting enough feedback. Instead, try to sell uh, articles to magazines. If you want to be a sci-fi writer, try to sell sci-fi articles to sci-fi sci magazines. Right? This is sort of a standard you know, approach because people aren't going to buy your article unless it's good. It's brutal feedback for a while because people reject it, but that's how people get good at this type of writing quickly. Um, if you're trying to, if you have a business idea, you know, okay, try to make some money off of it at a small scale. Before you know, people aren't going to buy your product or buy your service unless they find value. So if, if you can't actually get people to buy it, then you need to keep working. You keep needing uh, to stretch it. You know, um, if you're trying to get into a new industry, you try to do uh, some of the work on the side, which mm. is like what Ramit Sethi is is always pushing with his programs. Um, if you can actually get people to buy your services and your rates going up, then you're getting better. So that, that's one heuristic that I think works well. Like in nonfiction writing, for example, uh, you know, I've had this debate online. The way it works with major publishers is that you get an agent first and then before you write the book and then the agent sells it to the publishers, then you write the book. And I'm surprised by how much pushback I get when I tell people like this is how it works. They would much rather write the book and maybe self-publish it and do some other things. And they have a lot of reasons about gatekeepers and this and that. But one of the big advantages of the agent system is that uh, it's brutal feedback. You know, people don't want to invest their time and money in supporting your book unless it really has you know, your writings to a point and you're the right person to write the book and it's the right idea. Uh, so it's actually you know, an excellent source of brutal feedback that pushes you to the right idea quicker. Whereas if you just instead said, ah, I have an idea, let me just throw it out there in the world. I don't want gatekeepers to, they don't know what they're talking about. You're actually not improving that quickly, probably. You're not getting that type of feedback. So if someone's money is on the line, you're probably going to get a real answer. What could this type of feedback look like for someone who wants to enter politics or teaching or the nonprofit world where money isn't always the big currency? It's more of you know, maneuvering systems and stuff like that. Um, you know, what, what would expert feedback look like in those fields? Well, it is still money. And if you had a nonprofit idea, for example, can you raise money for it? Hmm. And if you can't, that's a really clear indicator. Like, well, wait a second, this wasn't the best idea. You're not the right person for this idea. You, you, you don't have, you don't really understand this field and what's come before you, you know, politics is the same way. I mean, you, you, you can I get, win an election in something? Can I, can I raise money to run? Can I win? Can I win at a low level? If I can't win at a low level, I'm not going to win at a higher level. You know, you're, you're in there doing things, trying things where there's money on the line. 
you know, teaching, you know, can I get hired to do this? And what really excites me about the way that you're framing this is that I, I think a lot of people often can get overwhelmed thinking, I want to write a book. Oh my gosh, am I going to write this book for two years and then send it to publishers and not get feedback? But there's there's a way to kind of micro turn your work work into smaller chuck, chunks yep. so that, you know, you can write the first chapter, try to get it published, and then, you know, that gives that's a good indicator, you know. And I know you've also mentioned that you build your work sometimes almost in an inverse manner where you'll blog about a lot of stuff and see what gets traction and maybe do a subsequent part two post and see if that gets traction and get see the feedback. And then that's how the books are formed. So maybe it's not even that we, we think about these big end goals. It's more about like, let me just take this interest and make an MVP of it and test it as soon as I can, get the feedback, and then that'll even better inform the path of how I develop things moving forward. Yeah, so what's the, what's the smallest unit, MVP or whatever, in which someone could say no or reject me or, or not want what I'm doing? Perfect, that's what I'm going to do. Because as long as, as, long as there's a, a chance here for someone to reject it, like I'm not going to buy this. Uh, I'm not going to invest my time in doing X. Then you're getting feedback. Now, there's other types of feedback. I mean, you can actually get real, you know, expert feedback through mentorships and these type of things. I and mean, there's mm -hmm. other sources of feedback. So I don't, I don't want it to seem as if this is the only thing. Yeah. But this heuristic is often an entryway for a lot of different fields. That you find a way where someone can reject you, maybe because you're asking for money, um, and that that's a great source of neutral, objective feedback. It's usually a good entryway. For example, as people get higher up in fields these sort of informal networks of mentors and feedback it becomes more and more important. So feedback gets more sophisticated um, as people continue towards elite levels. Uh, but this particular heuristic, I think, is a good entryway. Do you have any advice on asking for advice or mentorship? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you don't want to come out to someone you don't know and say, can you be my mentor? You know, that would be a little bit intimidating. Um, but people are generally happy to have a conversation if the purpose of it is you're really good at something. I want to one day be really good at something. Can I talk to you for an hour to, to learn about how you did it? People do like to talk about themselves. Um, so then how do you have that conversation? Well, my, my general rule there I've learned from writing a bunch of advice books where I have to extract actionable advice from people's experience is uh, if you get someone to sit down and talk with you, uh, unless they're a professional advice typewriter, have done a lot of reflection on their own life, don't ask them, what's your advice? How do I get good at this? Instead, just ask them for the details of their story. You just want to capture the beats of their career trajectory as if you're a reporter doing sort of background research for an article. And then you later can go and study what you learned and try to extract on your own what seemed to be important or what doesn't. So you don't say, hey, how do I get good? You instead say, what did you do right after college? And then what was the next thing that happened? And how did you get to that thing? And what was hard about it? Okay, what was next? And you, you get their real story and you can pull out later on your own, okay, what actually, what actually seems important in here? And the people who you likely should reach out to, and I'm trying to paraphrase, tell, tell, <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong, are people who have succeeded in the ways that you want to or even more importantly, are living the lifestyle in which you want to, you know? Yeah. And something that I often think about is, you know, if I'm a writer, I could reach out to, you know, some of the best writers in the world. Um, or I guess let's, let's take um, 
running a restaurant, for example, I, I used to run a food cart, um, and I was often thinking about who to reach out to for advice. And you know, one part of me was like, I want to reach out to Steve Ells, the founder of Chipotle, because he's just so good at building and growing a, a, a restaurant business, and you know, he just has so much wisdom and insight. Then another part of me was saying, maybe I should just talk to the restaurant tour down the street because they're dealing with the problems that I'm dealing with. And Steve Ells likely won't have his tacit knowledge of what it was like starting the restaurant because for the past 20 years, he's been dealing with different problems. You know, In terms of finding who's the best person to ask for advice, is it always the best, the top performers in the world? Or is it sometimes people who are just two steps ahead of you who may not be as skilled, but have almost a, a relative ability? I think that's a good point. So, so we, we have two factors here now. One is lifestyle-centric selection. So I think that's important. You wouldn't talk to Steve Ells if you weren't interested in running a sort of major inter international corporation that's worth tons of money. If, if that's not your vision of what you want to do with food, you want to talk to him. Uh, but what you're saying, I think, is a, is a valid secondary point as well, is that sometimes if you're talking to someone who's on the star trajectory – but isn't completely a star yet, you are going to get, you know, more of that tacit knowledge about the first couple of steps. I think that there's definitely something to that as well. Um, so there, there's strategy in there both ways. But yeah, certainly just saying who's the most famous person is not going to be the most useful way of finding someone whose example you can learn from. Mm -hmm. So we have for the deliberate practice, identifying your weaknesses and studying the people who do it really well the exercises that you're doing that really stretch you and give you give you the feedback you need to be successful in terms of building a system for yourself to do this you know i'm i'm thinking like you know if you were to do a 100 stack bar of <laughs> of which of these is more important and you know should i spend a whole weekend really drilling deep and identifying my weaknesses and then spend all the weekdays doing the exercises and then getting feedback or should it be an iterative loop that goes as fast so you know when you're planning this stuff and doing your how do you think about balancing research and action and timeline and you know uh, a way that i kind of like to think about this in my head is you know pemdas the order of operations in, yeah. in math What's sort of the order of operations as well as the system as well as the timeline for doing this effectively? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Well, so one thing I can talk about, for example, is I'm actually working on a, a course right now with the blogger and writer Scott Young where the whole point of the course is how to do this, how to identify what skills are important in your career and deliberately and very quickly get better at them. So we've been thinking about this a lot. Um, and I can tell you, for example, the basic outline of this course, and this is based off of doing multiple pilots. We've worked with hundreds of people and seen what works and what doesn't work in different professions. And the basic outline that we use in the course is you relatively quickly identify a particular skill you want to improve. Uh, usually this is based on expert interviews like we were just talking about. You find an appropriate expert using the lifestyle metric. You have a, a targeted conversation in which you then extract out of it, okay, here seems to be a key skill for what I want to do. Uh, and then we actually base the practiced regime around identifying a specific project. All right, a project that might take on the order of one to six months to complete. 
that has a clear outcome and that to complete it successfully will require you to stretch the skill that you're trying to improve so that you have some structure beyond just, uh, you know, I need the practice today, which is very hard to maintain. If you're instead saying, I am fighting to get this project done, uh, and it's a clear project with clear rewards, and I'm excited about it, that's a better framework for doing the practicing. Uh, then in terms of executing that project, you can imagine this is something that you're spending five to 10 hours on a week uh, on the side, very deliberate, deep time, uh, trying to solicit feedback along the way. Uh, and then when this project is completed, you've, you've basically made some sort of strides in your, in your skills. So that's, that's one natural way to sort of break this up is you, you hone in on a skill, you design a project to stretch your skills, you execute that project, you step back and assess how did this go? Am I better? Do I still think this was the most important skill? Do I need to take a break? What do I want to do next? And are there certain skills that are almost like the first domino that make other skills better? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, you know, in, in terms of teaching, there's all these different sorts of components of, you know, in some ways you need to be inspirational, you need to empathetic to the students, you need to understand the, their kind of cultural aspects, you need to have good pedagogy, you need to make sure you have good content. How do you sort of prioritize which of those to develop first? Well, this is part of what you figure out when you're deconstructing the skill yeah. and talking to experts and, and getting brutal feedback and, hey, why is my teaching scores lower? And let me get someone to look at this. Oh, I'm, I'm really falling short on these things. Let me, let me focus on those next. So it just that depends. That really depends on the particular, the particular field you're working on. And that's also why it takes a long time to get really good at almost anything. Mm -hmm. It's because there's a lot of different factors that, that are involved. Um, but if there's one general skill that's important for doing well, if you want to improve a specific skill, that's getting better at saying no. Uh, <laughs> doing a lot less in your life, um, having this ability to, to have a small number of things that are important and giving them a large amount of sort of deliberate, deep attention and not doing too much outside of those things. You know, be giving, this is what I do. I'm trying to do it really well. I'm committed to it. And outside of that, I'm not working on other things. I'm not constantly flitting my mind around and looking at a thousand different things. That's probably the most important meta skill. I and mean, if, you're, <laughs> if you're willing to work deeply on a small number of things, it's surprising how much you can produce. Bye, Facebook friends. I'll, I'll meet you in the real world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it turns out, I'll tell you, it turns out nothing really happens when you're not, nothing really bad happens when you're not on Facebook. <laughs> you, yeah. you still have friends. You still do things. And you have a lot more attention. So it's <laughs> I, I, I think people imagine it would be this disastrous scenario yeah. or whatever. And uh, I'll tell you what, my life's not that much different, except for I don't look at my phone as much, I guess. <laughs> Cal is still smiling every day. I, I still, yeah, it, you know, it's possible. I, I talk to people, I have friends, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't live in a cave. <laughs> yeah. How do, how do you, you know, it's probably hard to be specific on this, but do you have any general principles about how you measure your progress in deliberate practice? And how you can kind of, you know, maybe articulate it to an employer or someone? Well, it, you know, the specifics fall out depending on what skill you're improving. Mm -hmm. but, but by definition, you're going to have clear metrics with deliberate practice. You know, you have this clear skill. You're getting real clear feedback. Part of that feedback is going to be metrics that are relevant to that skill. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of this deliberateness is just objective clarity. How good am I? Did this make me better? And part of that might be someone telling you, an expert mentor, uh, this is not so good. Part of it is an actual sort of rejection or quantification. Hey, this magazine isn't buying my story. And part of it might be uh, a more, you know, 
specified metric, like how many publications did I have this year and how good were the venues if you're an academic, for example. Mm -hmm. So metrics play a huge role. I mean, you, you basically, you need to get away from your intuition and instincts about what you would like to do today and get towards, okay, I need an objective notion of what I should be doing and how, how effective it is. Yeah, awesome. And so, so, so something else I've been thinking a lot about in terms of deliberate practice is, and it kind of relates to focus. <laughs> you know, if there's no focus, then the deliberate practice is weaker. And sometimes when I think a lot about skill development, you know, if you want to become a better marketer or programmer, there's almost this underneath skill that drives that skill, which is sort of character traits such as self-control, willpower, um, even things like empathy that can help you understand people if the skill involves other people. How do you think about, you know, to me it almost makes sense to form a deliberate practice in self-control and then, you know, if I can hack the character, not hack, but if I can really master the character trait, then my deliberate practice in writing becomes, you know, 10 times more effective. What do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, things like self-control matter. Um, but to understand self-control more accurately, for example, you know, the, the current understanding of it is less of this notion of it being a skill that you get better at and more of it being uh, a consequence of what's going on in your life that day, right? So we, we have the Baumeister model of self-control as a muscle that tires. So if you're doing lots of stuff, and you have lots of different things pulling at your attention and lots of different initiatives and projects going on uh, that you're trying to touch on all of them most days, you just exhaust the self-control muscle. And, and it's just going to be very difficult for you then to say at 4 o'clock, okay, I'm now going to uh, think really hard about computer programming for three hours. You've, just, you've exhausted that self-control muscle at that point. So I think the, the broader meta skill is this notion of you want to approach life more as a craftsman which means that you really get your satisfaction out of having a small number of things that you're really trying to get good at, um, not just for the rewards of being good at them, but for the rewards of actually working on the craft, that there's this sort of deeply human connection we have to getting better at things, to honing our potential, to honing craft. So that's deeply satisfying by itself, and there's a lot of reasons for why that's true. If you can adopt that mindset is what you're going for, a lot of these other meta skills come along for free, right? Because you, you do less stuff, you, you really focus on a small number of things and tread lightly on the other things. Mm -hmm. it, you become more energetic, you have more self-control, uh, you become more subtle and nuanced in your understanding of the field you're trying to, trying to improve. Um, so this notion of trying to become a, a craftsman as opposed to a renaissance man. Mm. Is, is maybe the mindset shift that can enable a lot of everything else that comes along. So there's something that I've experienced uh, in my own career where, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about education and changing systems and especially a lot of this stuff that involves a macro understanding of how the world works and how businesses work and industries are evolving. And there's been some times I've gone to recruiting events and met someone who has really fundamentally changed the way I understand things. And it's such a bright nugget of wisdom that it's made me realize that I was kind of thinking about things in the wrong direction um, and that there's really a more effective direction. In a sense, I almost met an expert who, who gave me an insight that I couldn't have found otherwise online. And so I guess my question around stuff like this is that 
there's always this sort of notion of the networking event and that you'll meet someone who, you know, you wouldn't really be able to proactively find because it's just kind of the serendipity of the event and they can help you find a connection to the right person who can forward your career and who can kind of, you can learn from and gain insights from. And so, you know, I guess a worry of doing or being so focused on the deliberate practice is that you get so into it that you you become ignorant to the evolving world and how things are changing, especially wanting to be an educator. There's always new things happening with, you know, new methods of ed tech and technology that are playing in and, and new studies and practices. And so how do you pursue deliberate practice while also making space for the serendipity and meeting people who can invigorate you and give you insights and who you can simultaneously contribute to? Because, you know, our careers are not isolated. <laughs> we're not in a bubble. We're interdependent and we, we're connected. So how do you think about deliberate practice and this sort of narrowed focus in that light? Well, my, my friend Scott Young had a good way of, of putting exactly this point, uh, which is when it comes to focusing, it's actually like a two-level type thing. So when you're, when you're focusing on a field, what that means is you're, you're resisting spending a lot of time on unrelated fields. But within the field you're focusing on, there can be, as part of this deliberate improvement, quite a bit of bouncing around, talking to people, learning, exposing yourself, trying to really immerse yourself into it, right? Um, so, for example, if you want to be a, a particular type of writer, within that focus, there might be a lot going on. It's not just here's a particular deliberate practice exercise I'm doing. You might also know a lot of authors, meet a lot of authors, read everything you can about authors, every interview you can find, get a sense of what's going on, subscribe to industry newsletters. That's all perfectly makes sense within the context of I'm really deliberately focusing like a craftsman on one thing, just like a really good woodcarver is probably reading, you know, woodcarver magazine and going to woodcarver conventions. Um, what you want to avoid when you're trying to be diligent or focus on something is saying, well, in addition to reading about this thing I care about and exploring this thing I care about, I'm also going to uh, regularly spend time on five unrelated fields. You know, that's what would, would sap your time away. So, so if as a writer you're also dabbling in computer programming and you're also dabbling in sort of an unrelated type of business and you're also dabbling in you know trying to play the guitar at the professional level, that's where you're too scattered. But once you've chosen something to focus, that doesn't mean all you do is practice. It just means that this field is getting most of your attention and a big part of your effort is deliberately improving your craft in this field. How do you think in your own life about, you know, getting better at communicating and sharing love with people or understanding people's perspectives. You know, you're saying that they kind of come along, but is there any effort that you exert in terms of improving your abilities to in those areas? Well, you know, I think a lot of that is just spending time with people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you, if you actually uh, spend time with people uh, that you care about, and you allow yourself the space to actually do that. I think more of what we're actually, we're, we're social beings as humans. We're very good at it, but you have to give yourself a chance to actually, you know, stretch and practice these skills. Um, so if you're actually, you know, I spend time with people, and I have space for that and attention for that, and that's an important part of my life, I think those skills come along. And this is actually a problem, I think, for for our generation, especially the younger Member, so I'm 
33. So for people that are a little bit younger than me, um, have had, you know, text messaging and social media for like most of their life that they can remember, uh, you know, a lot of that takes you away from fully present type of social, just being there and being with people that from earlier generations we're just used to. This is just a big part of our life. You're just going to spend your day with someone. And if you're going to talk to someone, you're going to be on the phone with them for a couple hours and really have a sort of conversation. Um, so I think what you're talking about is what we're meant to do well. And the fact that some of us are struggling with it today is artificial. So it's really a matter of getting back to what we were in some sense evolved to do, which is just to be with people and spend time with people and just be present and doing that. And having that back in your life, those skills come along. Awesome. I, I want to be respectful. I had three more quick questions um, or two more, um, but I know that we're kind of running up on the hour. Do you, do you have an extra seven minutes or so? Or Yeah, we can do the two questions. Okay, cool. Um, great. So, you know, you're, you're teaching at a university. Um, how can a university, let's say you had a big group of incoming freshmen and there's the freshman orientation and you really want to get them set with structure, with sort of context in developing a, a, a deliberate practice and kind of directing, having self-directed learning. How would you design that? You know, it could almost be a one day boot camp on so de developing a deliberate practice for yourself. What are sort of the things that you would put in front of the students and discussions and whatever other components? So to, so to clarify, the goal would be to help them in what? You said self-directed learning? Kind of self-directed learning and to develop their deliberate practice. Well, if, if I was at a college student orientation, because I used to write and give a lot of talks about uh, on college campuses about... Uh, skills for being a successful student, for being an engaged student, for being a happy student. So it's, it's something I've thought a lot about. And especially if I was at a competitive university where these type of cultures can get uh, subverted pretty quickly, the, the two things I would emphasize would be, um, one, uh, do less, okay? That this notion of while you're here, you, you want to do a small number of things well, by which I mean overloading yourself has no benefits, Right? It's not going to make you more impressive to the outside world. It's not going to make you more engaged in what you're learning. It's just going to burn you out. It's just going to stress you out. You want to purposefully do less and give yourself the time to really do what you do do really well. Right? This is, this is a, a, an equation that works really well for students in building engagement, self-control, energy, connection, the ability to go after their studies. And then the second thing I would say is that learning things is a skill that you can be good or bad at, and it's something you have to practice. I mean, you have to practice how you manage your time, how you take notes, how you try to learn material. Assume you're not going to be very good at it at first in the same way that if I gave you a guitar and you'd never played a guitar before, you're going to be pretty bad at it, right? You would accept with the guitar that you're going to have to practice quite a bit before you can, you know, play some songs that people recognize. Learning's the same way. And these are skills. You get better at it. So treat it like something you're practicing. That didn't work so well. Let me try this. So if you do those two things, keep yourself non-overloaded, uh, do a smaller number of things, and give yourself more than enough time to do them, and then treat the actual act of learning and managing these obligations as something that you're going to try to actively improve at. That's a formula for students who not only do really well, uh, but tend to be way more energized and engaged with what they're actually up to. Awesome. 
And what unanswered questions do you have about deliberate practice and all the things that you're studying? Well, deliberate practice as a topic is under a lot of debate right now in the various fields where it's, it's relevant, which I find really interesting, actually. Um, so the, the unanswered question surrounding deliberate practice is, tends to be what role does it play versus uh, natural, natural abilities when it comes to people reaching very elite levels of achievement. So this is actually a, a huge debate that's going on right now. Uh, at, at one end of the spectrum, you have, you have people who say it's all, all practice, that's all that matters. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have much more on the genetic determinism side of, you know, some people are meant to do some things, they'll just naturally do it well, it doesn't take much work. Most people are sort of falling somewhere in between right now, that it's, it's a software-hardware thing, that uh, you have to deliberately build up the software if you want to do something really well. That's a lot of practice. Um, but how long it takes you to become really good at it and what limit you reach also has a lot of hardware uh, inter interactions. So um, natural components, things that pre-exist. This certainly seems like it's true for sports. Uh, but it's a really interesting question. Like how much is the software hardware trade-off relevant for knowledge work pursuits? You know, when it comes to things like being a computer programmer or a teacher or a writer, uh, how much of our potential is limited by some traits that we don't even know we have and how much of it is just deliberately practicable. Um, we don't have an answer to that question right now. We know you have to do deliberate practice to get better. We don't know in these type of knowledge work fields uh, how much other traits affect how quickly you get better and what level you reach. So that would be something I'd love to have more detailed answers to. Awesome. And do you have any closing thoughts for the audience? Any words of wisdom <laughs> that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I mean, I think to summarize what I've been talking about, um, you know, I, I sometimes will will push ideas towards an extreme just for the the sake of uh, clarity. But I think the reality surrounding careers and career satisfaction is that it's complicated, and that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, so in general. What I've found spending the last four or five years researching careers and career satisfaction is that uh, easy slogans and simple plans do a poor job of explaining the reality of how people end up happy about their work. And the notion that we have an intrinsic passion that we were born with and that if we identify it and match it to our job, then we'll be happy forever after is an example of one of these two simplistic plans. It's just more complicated how people end up with satisfaction. But I think things like getting really good, becoming a craftsman, building career capital, investing that capital carefully to take more control over your career, these type of factors seem to pretty consistently work together uh, in pushing someone towards work that's more meaningful. So it's not as sexy as the idea of if you choose the right job today, you'll be loving your work tomorrow. Um, but it really does seem, all the research we have, all the anecdotes as well, uh, seem to say that this is not the only way to get there, but it's a very consistent way of getting to a, a working life that you actually feel passionate about. Great. Well, thank you so much, Cal. I really appreciate this interview, and I think I'm going to shut off my electronics and get down to practicing now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now you're talking. I'll text my mom and my friends first, but, uh, you know. Yeah, you know, I'm not dead, I'm just practicing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not dead, I'm just practicing. That, that yeah. might be the title of the, uh, of the, of the episode. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great, well, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Thank you.